Let's move into our time of study together. We are, as uh, we mentioned earlier, up to Daniel chapter 4. And it's a bizarre chapter in some respects, but it's also a very insightful and encouraging chapter in others. It's a chapter that reminds us that we should never give up on loved ones. We should never assume that they can't be saved, that their hearts are too hard, that they are so content in this life that they won't ever want to consider the Lord because the Lord has a way of working. And so often it's in response to the prayers and the obedience and the faithfulness of his servants. And we're going to see that played out in a very dramatic way in this chapter. Uh, yet it's full of other uh, interesting lessons um, and some things that I speak, think speak directly to the days that we're living in. Now, if we look at this uh, in the uh, chronolo chronological sense, uh, we are down uh, as to round about 570 uh, BC now. Uh, you can see that uh, period of time where uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we'll see, because of his pride, ends up in this predicament. Now, if we look at that on a, um, a chart, uh, you can see hopefully the dates there, hopefully it's not too small on your screen. The really interesting thing to note, if we look at this uh, as to where we are, uh, if you right at the bottom of the screen there, this is the period of time chapter four occurs. Uh, it's the 37th year of King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, seems to be the first year that this uh, situation we can read about occurs. Um, but what's fascinating is that it's actually the 44th year that King Nebuchadnezzar dies. Um, now, what that means is that the account we're about to read occurs just before his death. And it means that he comes to a place of trust and belief in the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob just before he dies. Has enough time to record the event, which is what we're going to read, and for it to be a testimony to this great God, this mighty God, this God who rules in the kingdoms of men. And the Lord clearly had uh, given his grace to Nebuchadnezzar that he would come to this place of repentance and belief. Uh, and obviously we have this great testimony. So let's go through the account uh, that we have in chapter four. What I'm going to do, because it, it flows so nicely as a narrative, I'm just going to read it through to start with, and then we'll go back and we'll look at it verse by verse. Now, the first thing we need to just say up front is this is a letter from a Gentile king to the world. Okay, it's written in Aramaic in the original, and these are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so this is why the, the, the graphics are slightly different. This isn't our normal text of scripture. Still, of course, inspired by God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. But this is God's word. Um, but this is the word given to us by this Gentile king. So we read Nebuchadnezzar the king. Unto all people, nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid. 
and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians and the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him, I told the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and uh, in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beast get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth. Even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. This matter is by the decree of the watchers, and the demand by the word of the holy ones. To the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will, and setteth up over it the basest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, forasmuch as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was a stonied for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. The tree that thou sawest, which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heavens, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all under which the beasts of the field dwelled, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thou, O king, that are grown and become strong. For thy greatness is grown and reaches unto the heaven, and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him, this is the interpretation. 
O King, and this is the decree of the Most High, which is come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall uh, wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honoured him that liveth for ever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, mine honour and my brightness returned unto me, and my counsellors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. So there you are, Daniel chapter 4. What an amazing account we have. Now let's go through because there's so much I want to pull out and uh, hopefully this will be a blessing and an encouragement. First of all, as we said, this is a letter from a Gentile king. Okay, so this is one of the only portions of Scripture that we have that's not written by a Jew. Of course, Scripture was given to us by the Jews primarily. Of course, Daniel is the one that's ultimately recording this for us and has given us the record. But this writing was by Nebuchadnezzar himself. But notice also that he doesn't just write to his own subjects. This is written to all the people that are on the earth. This is written to everybody. Nebuchadnezzar wants this message to go abroad. So everybody needs to hear this. And there's never been a time like today when everybody needs to hear this message, that God is the one that rules in the kingdoms of men. And wouldn't our governments do well to take heed of that right now? <clears throat> of course, this king was one of the most powerful who ever lived. 
and he has something to say. So we should sit up and take notice of this lesson, this message, uh, this instruction that he gives us. <clears throat> now, he says, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought toward me. Now, there's a couple of things to mention. By the time Nebuchadnezzar writes this, all of this has taken place. So this forward that we have at the beginning of the chapter is simply his introduction to tell you what all, all, all that transpired, all that went on. Uh, and this is like his little preface to it now, explaining that because of all that's happened, I wanted to write to you and tell you, even though it's a chapter that speaks of the king being humiliated effectively, he ended up realizing that his own worth, his own importance matters not. What matters is our relationship and our understanding of the God of heaven. Now he says that uh, he speaks here that, that the high God uh, has wrought these things. Uh, it's just interesting because there are obviously many gods in Babylon. It was full of gods. In fact, we could argue that idolatry was practically invented in Babel, of course, later to be known as Babylon. It's the same physical location. Uh, but don't miss the significance of what Nebuchadnezzar says, because he says that God, Daniel's God, is the high God. OK, by saying that he's putting down all of the other gods that Babylon worshipped and saying they are effect as nothing. Now, in Aramaic, of course, as I said, this what this chapter was written in. The word that's translated high is actually an adjective. It's is ille, uh, and it means highest, supreme or the one above every other god. That's what he's saying. Now, Isaiah makes similar comments uh, back in uh, Isaiah before this time. Isaiah said, thus says the Lord, the king of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last, and beside me there is no God. In Isaiah 45, verse 20, 21, uh, Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together that you are escaped to the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot save. I mean, this is what the world has done. The world has set up idols which are nothing. They are the work of men's hands. They're the construct of man's imaginations or ideas. Verse 21, tell me, or tell ye and bring them near ye. Let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? I mean, it's a question that Isaiah will reiterate. You know, who is there that can tell the future in advance? Now, we've already seen this in the book of Daniel the Lord revealing the future in advance. And God says here in Isaiah chapter 45, you know, who is it that can declare from ancient times the things that are going to be? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And God says himself, there is no God else beside me, a just God and a savior. There is none beside me. And then verse 22 concludes and says, look unto me and be you saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. The Bible says that God created everything that is in heaven, that is in earth, that is in the sea, everything. Now, God clearly knows whether there is another God out there. And he says there isn't. There is no other God. There is no other deity. There is no other power. Uh, there is no other one to whom you can turn, not only for salvation, but for understanding. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar will explore um, and explain as he goes through this, uh, he once thought of himself as supreme. 
And what we see is God challenging that mindset he had where he believed himself to be, if you remember that statue of gold that he built in chapter three, as if to declare himself some sort of eternal deity, that his kingdom would have no end. Now, of course, he acquired great wealth and power, you know, and whatever Nebuchadnezzar said, people did. You know, his um, word was his command and people just obeyed. But he came to see that a man can gain the world but lose his soul. And of course, there is no profit in that. Uh, Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus made that statement that what good is it if a man gains the whole world but loses his soul? Of course, now Nebuchadnezzar knows and is recording this and giving it to us to tell us that there is a higher power. It's beyond the realm of earthly kings and governments and with a greater sovereignty than a man has even over his own life. Because one of the challenges we have is that people think they have a right to rule over their own lives. And people think that in giving away that right, in following after Jesus Christ, in following God, that you have to give up your sense of freedom. It's not the case. Freedom is found by giving it away to God, by letting God direct our paths, because only God is wise. Only God knows the end from the beginning. And to follow the best and the right and the proper plan for our lives means following God's plan and instruction for us, whether we understand that or not. And so one of the challenges is not just that the governments of the world are in kind of juxtaposition against God, uh, but it's the fact that individuals themselves have also got this belief that we are standing against God in a sense that we have our own um, sovereignty over our own lives. Uh, and by doing that, that's the root of sin, the claim to my rights to myself. When we come to that place of giving up and surrendering that right to ourselves and enthroning God, well, then we're in a good place. I've said many a time before, you can understand much of history, the world, much of scripture by understanding two thrones. One is the throne of David. And of course, that makes sense of Israel and all that's going on in the Middle East, even right now. The other throne is the throne of your own heart. If you understand those two thrones and you understand who should be sitting on them, it's the same person as Jesus Christ, then you'll have a better understanding of why we go through the challenges and the problems we do when we try to sit on our throne, uh, the throne of our own life. Verse three goes on, how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. What a contrast from chapter three, where he built this golden statue, as we mentioned, to symbolize his own everlasting king, kingdom and dominion. He's now realized he's finally got to the place. You know, God is giving him two warnings already to remind him we have the situation uh, in chapter two that we looked at where he had this incredible dream that Daniel interprets. And then in chapter three with the uh, fiery furnace and Hananiah, Azrael and Mishael, uh, how they uh, revealed to him through that situation that there is a God who is greater than Nebuchadnezzar and a kingdom that's greater than Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Well, finally, third time round, here we are, chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it and makes this declaration that God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. And once again, how the world's governments today would do well to take heed to that statement. 
course, it took the faith of those three Hebrew men that we mentioned a moment ago uh, to show Nebuchadnezzar by those signs and wonders how inferior he was compared to their mighty God. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was duly impressed, but there hadn't been a change in his heart up until this situation that we're now reading about in chapter four. We're now around about 26 years later. Uh, and so after learning the hard way, and we're going to see just how hard that really was for Nebuchadnezzar, he does finally get it. And so he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Now, there's the problem, isn't it? You know, we could describe all of the problems we have, the complacency of the human condition by looking at that verse, verse four of Daniel four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. That's what everybody strives for. You know, people go out to, to work, they earn their money, they try to build their homes and they do decorate and they try and fill it with all the things they want and they look to acquire in life all the blessings that life can, can offer, try to put around them the people they want to have around them as their friends, you know, and they, they measure that as success. That's not success. Success, biblically, is obedience, obedience to God. That's success. That's where we can be truly content. Paul makes that comment in the New Testament that in all circumstances, he'd learned to be content. It's not about whether we are at rest. It's not about whether we're flourishing from a worldly perspective. That's the world's measure, but it's not a true reflection. And you only need to look at celebrities that seemingly have everything and yet they have nothing. But nevertheless, Nebuchadnezzar here says that that's the place he was in. He was in a great place personally. His life was going really well. And suddenly everything falls apart. In Luke 12, verse 16 to 21, we read this. Jesus said, he spoke a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. So much. Where do I put it all? And he said, this will I do. I'll pull down my bars and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, be merry. Well, isn't that a little bit like Nebuchadnezzar is saying right here? But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. There you go. That's the biblical summary of what I said a moment ago. It's not about success. It's about obedience. It's about putting God first. Nebuchadnezzar carries on verse five. I saw a dream which made me afraid. Now, this is the king. He already had a few moments like this. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. So all of the peace, all of that joy, that uh, the, the, the plenteousness that he was enjoying suddenly counted for nothing as he's plunged into this turmoil because of this dream that he has. You know, God really does have a way of getting our attention and even the hardest and most unreachable people in our eyes are never beyond the reach of God. Did Daniel pray for his king? I suspect he did. There's no specific account of Daniel interceding or praying. Uh, well, I say that there is actually, and we'll see that in this chapter. Um, so, but in terms of actual uh, an account of Daniel praying, we don't have that record. But I am sure that Daniel, from the time he'd arrived in Babylon, had been praying for this Gentile king. And we see the fruit of that effort, that fruit of that labor, the fruit that Daniel never gave up. Daniel clearly had 
a place in his heart for Nebuchadnezzar and wanted to see him come to know his God. <clears throat> Daniel certainly didn't give up on him. And this encouragement to you this morning is don't give up on your loved ones. Doesn't matter what position they're in. Doesn't matter how much wealth or success or position in this life they seem to have or not. Never give up. Never give up because God is able to do things that we would think impossible. And Daniel would have never imagined this situation, this scenario. And yet God uses this as a way of bringing Nebuchadnezzar into a genuine relationship. So much so that God allows this Gentile king to write a chapter in the Bible. Therefore, made I decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Now, the question here is, why didn't he just go to Daniel? You know, Daniel was his trusted advisor. Daniel had already given that great interpretation back in chapter two. He knew that in Daniel was the spirit of the holy gods, as he'll himself say. Now, if he knew that was the case, why not go? Well, I suspect the reason for this is that he might have been afraid of the answer. I think there was probably enough in the dream already for Nebuchadnezzar to suggest that uh, or for him to realize that this could be well talking about him. Because the last dream in chapter two that we had was talking about him. So there's a strong probability that this was also going to reference him and it didn't seem to be a good outcome. Sometimes, you know, we don't want to hear the truth. There's an account in First Kings chapter 22. Um, let me just read this to you. Uh, it says, then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 uh, men, and said, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I forbear? And they said, go up, for the Lord shall deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, said, is there not a here a prophet of the Lord besides that we may inquire of him? And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, there is one man, uh, uh, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, who we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he does not prophesy good concerning me. So that's King Ahab of Israel, the northern kingdom's response. When Jehoshaphat says, well, shouldn't we inquire of the Lord? Shouldn't we go see what God says? He says, well, there is a prophet, but I don't like asking his advice because he always gives me bad news. And yet, of course, Ahab knew that the advice that Micaiah would give would be from God. And I think the same situation here is that sometimes we don't like to hear the truth. We don't like to hear things that we know are uncomfortable. Uh, and so I think this is a situation that Nebuchadnezzar tries to go to the, the wise men of Babylon and so on to try and get their take on this before inevitably uh, going to Daniel. And we read, then came in the magicians and the astrologers and the Chaldeans. Notice anything? Well, right back in chapter two, the Chaldeans put themselves right at the front of that list. They were the first ones to come and try and offer the king some advice uh, because they were the local um, people. Uh, they were from the, the realm of Babylon. They wanted to be seen to be the best in the king's eyes. And so they tried to get one over on the magicians, the astrologers and the soothsayers and so on. Here, they're kind of down the list. It's almost as if they, they kind of reluctantly, but the magicians or the magi, to be more accurate, are the ones that lead the way. They come into the king, uh, but again, the astrologers, Chaldeans, soothsayers, and I told them, Nebuchadnezzar says, the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. Now, it's interesting. As I said, the Chaldeans kind of come in at a distance here, um, but notice it says, they did not make known. Now, 
uh, it says, nor were they able. Now, I don't know, is this the case that they did know, but they just didn't want to tell the king for fear of what the king might do? The king had a reputation for uh, killing people and making their houses a dunghill. Uh, and of course, that wasn't a good incentive program. Um, and it appears, though, that they didn't really try. They didn't want to give the king the interpretation, even if they had an inkling as to what this may have meant. But then we read verse 8. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar. Did you get that? At the last, Daniel came in. This is Nebuchadnezzar writing this. Daniel came in, whose name was Belteshazzar. The king, this Babylonian king, refers to Daniel by his proper name. Adds the fact that, oh, by the way, he's also called Belteshazzar. But clearly, the king had come to know him as Daniel. That was the name, of course, that he'd been given by his parents as a name that uh, was a God-glorifying name as opposed to Belteshazzar, which is this uh, Babylonian uh, name. And it says, Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. So Nebuchadnezzar makes the point here that he'd been given this name after his God. And then he says, in whom, in Daniel, in whom is the spirit of holy gods. Now, drawing this comparison between the gods whom he named Daniel after and the real gods, the holy gods, before him, I told the dream saying. And by the way, don't be concerned by that statement of holy gods, because in scripture, we have this expression Elohim. We'll talk about this in a while. Um, but it's the plural. Uh, it's a father, son, and holy spirit all in view here. So finally, Daniel gets to speak. And again, Daniel, uh, he, the king calls him Daniel. And again, what a, a contrast. The, the king started out following his God, but ends up following the most high God. And he says, oh, Belteshazzar, master of the magicians. Uh, right, Daniel has now become chief of the magi. Okay, Rab Mag is the, the expression that's used in Jeremiah and elsewhere. Uh, but Daniel is put in charge of this um, Medo-Persian um, priestly group. And why this is so significant is because Daniel imparts to the magi these wonderful prophecies of when the Messiah would come to Israel, the rightful king of the Jews. Remember, the crown had been taken away from Israel in 587 BC when, Neb when Zedekiah, the final king, had been taken captive to Babylon. And there had been no king in Israel during this period of time. Um, they had abode many days without a king, as uh, had been prophesied. But eventually, these magi come back. When the time is right, they see a star in the east. They travel to Jerusalem to where they would expect to find the king. And they go into the palace and say, where is he that had been born king of the Jews? They were magi. They were descendants of this group of whom Daniel is now placed in charge. And so the king says, oh, Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit. Notice this. He says, I know that the spirit of the holy God is in thee. So he already knew he should have gone to Daniel to start with, shouldn't he? Uh, but he says, I know that uh, the spirit of the holy gods is in thee and no secret troubleth thee. I want you just to make notes of that little statement there. You know, th this is a very clear statement we have. Look, no secret troubleth thee. Why do I make a point of that? Well, you'll see in a second. He says, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. So we go on. Thus were the visions of my head in my bed 
And this now is the, the dream. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and the height thereof was great. The tree grew and was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of the earth. I want you just to get that idea as well. This is obviously a really tall tree, but it's reaching, it's so tall that you can see the ends of the earth. Now, I would suggest, and we'll come back to this in a little while, that there is more being implied here through this dream than we see on the surface. Because this idea that you can see to the end of the earth, I think is a prophetic statement. It's not just talking about in terms of vision at that time. I think it's talking about in duration, seeing to the end of earth in terms of the realm of the kings of the earth. Anyway, the leaves thereof were fair and the fruit thereof was marching and it was meats for all the beast of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all flesh was fed of it. I saw the visions of my head upon my bed, and behold, a watcher. Now, uh, this is an angel that's coming. Uh, this may seem a strange expression to us, but uh, it clearly seems to be an angelic being that is coming now. Uh, and a holy one came down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, cut off its branches, Shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. And then I want you to notice this bit here. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth. Why? Well, there's an application here we'll look at. It says, even with, now notice this, a band of iron and brass. What do those two metals speak of? If you remember when we were looking in chapter 2, we saw this incredible image with Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. We saw the uh, chest and the arms of silver. Then we saw the belly and the thigh of bronze or brass. And then the legs and the toes made of iron and the toes mixed partly with clay as well. These two metals have already been explained to us prophetically. Iron and brass. Iron, Rome. Brass, Greece. We'll come back to that in a, in a moment. But for now, this stump is left and it's wrapped around. It's bound up with this band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field. And let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let its portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from a man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times. What does this mean? We find in the book of Revelation, uh, this expression, times, time and half a time. Now, we're also in Revelation given uh, a numerical number of how many days that is. It's 1,260. When you do the maths, you find out that a time is equal to a year. There's another way of saying a year. Half a time is half a year. So in the book of Revelation, it speaks of time, times, plural, and half a time. So times plural is two, plus time is one, so that's three. And then half the time is half. So we have three and a half. And you find that seven-year tribulation that is spoken about so much in Scripture is divided into two three-and-a-half-year periods. Now here, the reference is to seven times. So by times, we're talking about years. So it's saying, let seven years pass over him. This matter is by decree of the watchers. Now the king had been used to giving decrees himself, but this now is a decree from God himself. Uh, and the demand by the word of the holy ones. To the intent that the living may know the, the most high God ruleth in the kingdoms of man and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it 
the basis of man. So here really is the, the learning that Nebuchadnezzar was to take away from the situation, that God is in control, that God is the one that rules over the kingdoms of man. I mean, just pause for a second. Think of all that's going on in the world right now. Think of all the turmoil, all the unrest, and even as Christians, the anxiety that many experience. Well, we're told here that God rules over the kingdoms of men. God is in control. God is still on the throne. Nothing has shaken God. Nothing has moved God from his position. COVID-19 didn't take God by surprise. What is going on in Israel right now hasn't taken God by surprise. All that is going on with this... um, uh, attack on morality, attack on gender, attack on marriage, all of those things, they've not taken God by surprise. You know, we sometimes get a little bit anxious when we look at the world and we see the things that are going on. But we need to remember that God is in control and he can set up whoever he wants. And notice here, as Nebuchadnezzar and setteth up over it the basis of men. You know, sometimes People are put in positions that we wouldn't choose. But bear in mind, God is working all things to fulfill his plan, his purpose, his will. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. And so now he gives Daniel this instruction. He says, uh, now thou art Belteshazzar, I declare the interpretation thereof for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me and the interpretation, uh, but thou art able for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. It's interesting now. I think this is in front of all the other uh, officials that were there, the Magi and the Chaldeans and so on. Uh, And so this is, again, why I think he uses Belteshazzar as a name rather than Daniel here. Um, But he makes the point that they can't do it. They can't tell me. um, uh, And they're not able to make it known unto me or certainly not willing. Uh, and so he's now says to Daniel, you know, now I want you to tell me because I know you're able. I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was a stony for one hour and his thoughts troubled him. Now, I want you to just take note of that because we've already made this point. What is it we said? Well, back in uh, verse nine, the king confidently asserts that nothing troubles Daniel. That is up until now. Daniel as he hears, hears this dream, God clearly reveals to him almost immediately the interpretation. And what Daniel sees, what he understands and perceives from this dream, troubles him. And Daniel just sits there for an hour thinking, how, how do I explain this to the king? What do I say? How do I break this to him? Bear in mind that Daniel clearly had a fondness of this king. And clearly the interpretation was such that Daniel was really concerned. You know, this is a man who even the king says, Daniel doesn't get troubled, and now Daniel's troubled. Now, if Daniel's troubled, the king's really troubled by this point. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation of trouble thee, uh, like it does me, because the king's obviously really on edge. It's not just that he's troubled, but that Daniel himself is troubled by this thing. So Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies. In other words, Daniel says, oh, oh King, you know, it'd be really good if this dream could be fulfilled on your enemies, on, on those that hate you, but not on you. That's really the implication of what Daniel's saying there. And so Daniel then says, kind of building up to this kind of climax, this crescendo here, the tree that thou saw which 
grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heavens and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwell, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. Uh, again, you can see Daniel kind of, or sense rather, Daniel kind of pausing at this point. He goes on, it is thou, King, you're, you're the one. You are this tree. You're the one that is this tree is going to be cut down. It's you, King. It says, O oh, King, that are grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reaches unto heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was a powerful king. He ruled over the no world at that time. No doubt Daniel had seen the king permanently remove those who offend him. I don't think Daniel was too concerned about that. But he was possibly concerned about how the king was going to react. You know, this is another time that Daniel had to trust God. You know, this is a strange situation. This wasn't the way that Daniel thought this day was going to go. And suddenly he's there before the king, about to give the king this news that his kingdom effectively is going to fall apart. And personally for him, it's going to be even worse. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one come down from heaven and saying, hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots that are of in the earth. And let me come back to this, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven times, seven years pass over him. Okay, so this is the statement. What does it mean? What's the understanding of this? Well, clearly what he's going to go on and explain is that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be brought low. He's going to be brought down. He's going to go on and deal with that in a second. But before we go on to that, I just want to share with you uh, some thoughts regarding this potentially uh, prophetic insight that we get with regard to this band of iron and brass. Now, remember again, I said to you, the iron uh, spoke of the Roman Empire and brass speaks of Greece prophetically. We've already seen that in that image in chapter two. So, of course, we see an application to Nebuchadnezzar that's going to be explained by Daniel in a moment. But where do we understand this? Well, we find in the Bible that there are a number of times we have something that commentators and scholars refer to as the law of double reference. The idea is that we have uh, a situation where a specific scripture refers to the, the near application, the thing that we see on the surface, but there's also a prophetic application that might be fulfilled at some point in the future. And certainly the wording of this, and as we said earlier, the scope that you can see to the end of the earth, effectively, does imply that there's more here. Now, just to give you a, a, an example of this, in Daniel chapter 8, uh, we have a chapter there. When we get there, we'll see it speaks about a uh, man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who desecrated the temple uh, for the Jews in about 167 BC. Now, although it speaks of him, the scope of that prophecy also goes on to speak of Antichrist who will come, who will do the same thing. He will desecrate the temple for the Jews. And so this idea, this law of double reference, we find a number of times in Scripture, just like that one in Daniel 8, that there's a, a a near application, something that was there at the time, but there's something prophetically looking uh, further off. Uh, and it's been proposed that we've got another double reference here in Daniel 4, verse 15, uh, and then obviously Daniel explaining it here in verse 23. So 
On the one hand, clearly it's referring to uh, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be driven from men. His kingdom uh, would eventually be returned to him, which is why this stump is to be left in the earth. And of course, that's a great explanation. That's what Daniel gives us. But, you know, this law of double reference does seem to apply. Every detail in scripture is there by design. Now, of course, the stump, which was Babylon, we find is to be bound with iron and brass. Now, God could have chosen any material to bind the stump, um, but he chooses these two specific, which, as I said, we've already had defined for us. Now, Daniel, if you remember back in chapter two, had this vision, this world empires that are yet to come. And of course, we mentioned that the Greek empire is the brass uh, and the Roman Empire as these legs of iron. Now, the more we study scripture, we become sensitive to the consistency of these uses of words and ideas and types and shadows and so on. Let me just give you uh, a few comments then regarding how this may play out. And I think it's really interesting uh, how this could apply in our day. Because if this is implied, if, if by the binding of the stump with brass and iron implies that Babylon would be bound by Greece and Rome, how do we understand that historically? Well, we know that Western culture largely has behind it its kind of political and social roots and scientific endeavors the work that was begun in Greece and Rome. We've got the logic of the Greek thinkers, their philosophy, mathematics, geometry, you know, all combined with their organ or the organizational structure that Rome brought in. Of course, our road systems and so many other things, our ways of counting all come down from Rome. You know, it's really become the backbone of our society today. You know, and our educational establishments had their origin in Greece. That's where the first universities really were established. You know, men like Plato and Aristotle, you know, that driving quest for knowledge and understanding. And of course, rationalism and reason were those driving forces that pushed the barriers of science and discovery. Now, of course, along with that, we've got the Judeo-Christian moral and ethical models that permeated this culture, both, you know, leading on from the Greeks into the time of the Romans and, and beyond. You know, and that's really been the, the mainstay of civilization for the last 2000 years. Now, the Apostle Paul bases arguments on reason and appealed to his hearers to think critically about what he was saying. Um, so they would see the logic of his position. We see that time and again in the book of Acts. So, again, that logic, kind of that reason mindset. So one of the legacies that the Greek and the Roman empires have left us was this rational and reasonable society. And in, in many ways, it was vastly superior to all that preceded it. And of course, there's little doubt that God has used that as a platform for the communication and the preaching of the gospel. Babylon, in contrast, was known for science, but it was a science that was mixed up with mysticism and occultism. You know, their astronomy was laced with astrology. You know, their ability to interpret dreams was based in psychology but it was also heavily influenced by mystical ideas. So they had a kind of a basis to their understanding that was scientific and rational, and yet they jumped to irrational, illogical conclusions based upon these other things that, that drove them and motivated them. They had great medical knowledge uh, and understanding of anatomy, uh, and yet they used this when dissecting an animal. They'd lay out the parts to determine, to determine the future. So a little bit like palm reading or TV reading, those kind of things that people indulge in today. And so there was often a complete hiatus between observation and conclusion. 
So why is this interesting? Well, if, as I believe what we're seeing here, is a, a prophecy to say that Babylon would be chopped down, its stump would, would be there, but it would be bound by iron and brass. In other words, it would, it would be restricted by iron and brass. And of course, iron and brass speak of this uh, logical, rational uh, society that we have become so accustomed to. Now, why it's so interesting today, and I think it's such a remarkable fit, um, is that we are seeing a re-emergence of the Babylonian mindset. So that stump that was cut down is sh shaken off the shackles of Greece and of Rome. We're becoming more and more slaves to Mother Earth, a concept that was really born and acknowledged very much in Babylon. You know, the rationalism and reason that typified the Greek and the Roman West is now giving way to this Babylonianism. It would appear that the bands of brass, again, uh, and iron that held the stump are falling off. The tree is starting to grow. And think of all sorts of different things. I'm not going to go into this in detail. I've put on the website, on the pastor's blog, uh, a, uh, a short little study on this uh, for those that want to look a little bit deeper. But you've got things like alternative medicine which are, are gaining popularity, and yet there's a lack of scientific support behind those things. You know, there's no real empirical evidence behind much of the things that are done under the banner of alternative medicine. You know, interestingly, in Babylon, um, they used to do, uh, if somebody had a poison in the system, what they would try and do is uh, give you another dose of that poison, but diluted as an antidote. But what they end up doing is diluting it so much that effectively none of the poison would remain in the antidote. So they'd give you something. It was almost like a placebo. You know, and, and we've got many things like that um, that are being uh, promoted today. Then we've got things like organic farming. Now, we're so familiar with these things. We don't tend to butt an eyelid anymore. Um, but behind some of this stuff, there was an interesting character by the name of Rudolf Steiner. He was behind a group called the Soil Association. They've often appeared on interviews on TV speaking about organic farming, the importance of this. But Rudolf Steiner was an, Aust an Austrian occultic philosopher, and he developed a system of ag agriculture uh, known as biodynamics, um, which rejected chemical fertilizers. Now, of course, on the surface, we think, well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Um, but it relied on planting the seed when the moon was full and in accord with other astrological uh, things that were going on. Uh, and it was very much regurgitating ancient Babylonian myths. And this became a backbone of much of what has become organic farming today. It seems very bizarre. I'm not suggesting everybody that's into organic farming does that. But there's also a lot of really interesting side effects that have come out of this as well. Uh, as I say, the full study of this will be on the web for those that want to have a look in it. But then we've got the other big problem today, the environmentalism and all these things that are claimed. And I'm not going to spend the morning derail the study by going on the tangent about all those things. Uh, uh, as I say, I'll let you have a look on the web. But climate change and all these issues uh, that get so much traction today, there are some really interesting uh, things that Christians need to be aware of in regard to this. So uh, I simply share it with you because I think it's interesting in regard to this study um, that this uh, root of Babylon was bound by iron and brass, but seemingly that root is starting to, to flourish again. Okay, let's jump back in with the text then. So we pick up, and uh, we said this is going to be for seven years. Verse 24 carries on. And Daniel says, this is the interpretation of king. And this is the decree of the most high, which is come upon my Lord, the king. Again, Nebuchadnezzar was all too familiar with issuing decrees. Now, he'd been given this decree by God himself. 
that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven seven times. Seven years shall pass over thee. And again, this is the point that Nebuchadnezzar has got to learn. Till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree of the roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that, thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Interesting that throughout this period, Nebuchadnezzar did not lose his throne, which is an incredible fact in itself. And no doubt in part as a result of Daniel being his right hand man. Daniel was, as it were, the prime minister with Nebuchadnezzar as the king. And it's seemingly that because of Daniel's influence, the throne remains Nebuchadnezzar's even during this time. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee. And this is where Daniel now pleads with him to repent uh, uh, unto thee and break off thy sins by righteousness and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. In other words, you know, he's pleading with Nebuchadnezzar that he'd repent, that he'd turn around, that his time of prosperity would be continued, that he wouldn't have to go through this. Daniel, of course, knows from Israel's history that God is long-suffering and full of mercy and pleads with the king on that basis. And then Nebuchadnezzar says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the interesting thing is that we find that it's actually a year later. So he has a year in which to repent and doesn't do it. At the end of 12 months, he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. Now, God gave Nebuchadnezzar this year. Jeremiah 17, 19, 17 verse 9 records, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, so one evening the king's out for a stroll, looking at his kingdom and feeling invincible, and says this. But the king spoke and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power for the honor of my majesty? Notice it's a real pride trip here. Proverbs 6, verse 16 onwards says, These six things does the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, notice there, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among brethren. But notice what is the first one on the list, a proud look. Proverbs 16 verse 5 says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be unpunished. God is very clear about the issue of pride. Of course, pride was that which drove Satan to his fall. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we'll see that played out here with Nebuchadnezzar. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken the kingdom is departed from thee. Again, scriptures tells us, we saw the scripture a moment ago, that God is not mocked. And clearly Nebuchadnezzar had a year to repent and had not done it. And the terror of this must have been almost unimaginable for the king to hear this voice. Everything he'd heard a year before that had troubled him and had troubled Daniel, Daniel is about to come upon him. Of course, he had two warnings already, that God is the one that rules in the kingdoms of men. Uh, so he was without excuse. The same is true for people in this world. They've had plenty of warnings. Uh, and when God brings judgment, nobody will be able to uh, claim ignorance or that they didn't know or they didn't understand. 
And they shall drive thee from man, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen. Seven times shall pass over thee until thou knowest that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from man and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So there's a physical change going on here as well. Now, there's actually a common condition. Um, I say common. It's a condition certainly that's, that's known of. Uh, lycanthropy. Now, it comes from the Greek uh, lycos, meaning wolf, and anthropos, which means man. So the idea is a wolf man. Now, you've heard of this, of course. Um, there's very few recorded cases, but there's been extensive mythology that's come from this. The idea of werewolves and the legends that kind of permeate, uh, you know, uh, legends and so on. Um, now, there's a variation of this disease, which is called boanthropy, where rather than believing oneself to be a wolf, one believes oneself to be an ox or a cow. Now, again, this is rare, uh, but this, is an illness, this illness seems to be the one that most likely fits this situation. Of course, critics will try and tell you this is nonsense. It couldn't happen. It's not possible. Um, but there does seem to be medical support for this condition. Um, now, myth and legend aside, there was actually a case recorded just after the Second World War where a man in this country in his early 20s was admitted to a mental institution with all the symptoms consistent with boanthropy. Now, in the study notes that I'll send out, I'll give you the transcript and the comments. And uh, John Woolward, in his commentary, actually gives uh, a statement about this. So, um, But I'm not for the sake of time. I won't go through it now other than to simply say... Uh, the critics love to mock this, but even Eusebius uh, refers to a Greek historian called Abidenus, who cites a case in 268 of this with a man with almost similar or identical conditions to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and Josephus also quotes Besorus, who's a Babylonian historian. He documented the case of a Chaldean priest at the time of Alexander the Great, who once again appears to have suffered from this disease. So although rare, it's certainly not impossible, and there's historical documentation, as well as a more recent uh, case of this problem. <coughs> now, uh, in the East India Company Museum in London, there's interestingly a cuneiform tablet has been discovered that's inscribed with details about Nebuchadnezzar's illness. Uh, and further evidence to support the biblical account was the discovery of what's been known as the Prayer of Nabonidus. Now, it was found in Qumran. Remember the Dead Sea Scrolls? Uh, well, in those uh, caves was found this statement, this Prayer of Nabonidus, as it's often referred to. Now, seemingly, the the letters between Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, um, in the Assyrian, there's only one letter differences in the spelling, although they've seen very different in the English. Um, and so commentators suggest they think actually this isn't about Nebuchadnezzar at all. This is actually Nebuchadnezzar's prayer. But anyway, I'll read as it says. This is what, what it says in this document that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The words of the prayer that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Assyria and Babylon, the great king prayed when he was smitten with a malignant disease by the decree of the Most High God in the city of Timah. I was smitten for seven years, and from men I was put away. But when I confessed my sins and my faults, he, that's God, allowed me to have a soothsayer. He was a Jewish man of the exiles in Babylon. He explained it and wrote me to render honor and great glory 
to the name of the Most High God. So we have a historical account of this thing as well. So although critics would love to dismiss this, uh, there does seem to be some strong evidence to support the biblical account, as we would expect. We read verse 34, coming to the end. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honoured him that lived forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. You, you know, we can almost make a case that this is really a big, in a big picture, the way it is with man. From the time of the fall, our understanding departed from us. And man has been wandering around as if it were like beasts, uh, almost acting as beasts. Romans chapter one kind of even uses that kind of expression uh, that we've given ourselves over to these lusts and these passions and so on. And then, of course, when we come to that place of putting our trust in the Most High God, our understanding returns so that you can see a bigger picture in this. And of course, that lesson, once again, is reiterated, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, but he doeth according to his own will uh, in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? And Isaiah, it says, woe unto him that strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, what makest thou? Or thy work has no hands. Uh, sorry, or, or thy work he has no hands. I mean, it's ridiculous the way people speak about and speak of God. At the same time, my reason return unto me. And for the glory of my kingdom, mine honor and brightness return unto me. And my counselors and my lords sought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom. And notice he says, an excellent majesty was added unto me. It's almost like Job, isn't it? That at the end of his time, his excellent majesty added, God blesses him even more. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways judgment and those that work, those that walk in pride, he's able to abase. This is the testimony of a Gentile king who came to faith in the God of Daniel. And we praise God that we have this record because there are many that need to hear, that need to realize that God is in control. With all that's going on in the world, do not worry, do not fear, do not panic. God is still on his throne. And regarding those whom we love, just as Daniel had this affection for Nebuchadnezzar and no doubt prayed for him through his time there, we read in 1 Timothy in closing, I exhort thee, or I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So that's for your aunties, your uncles, your brothers, your sisters, your mums, your dads, anyone who doesn't yet know the Lord. Those intercessions need to be made. And also for kings and for all that are in authority, just as Daniel did for Nebuchadnezzar, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's God's design. Not everybody will, but God wants people to turn from their sin and repent. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this time this morning to look at these incredible events this historical narrative we have that this record of this gentile king to remind us that you are in control oh and lord help us not to worry 
Help us, Lord, to trust you, despite all that we see going on in the world around us, that, Lord, you are in control and you rule in the kingdoms of men. And, Father, may we trust you, worship you, give you the honour and glory due your name. And, Lord, at the same time, may we follow Daniel's example and pray for those that we love, knowing that you are a God that desires all to come to repentance. We thank you for these things now. In Jesus' name, amen.